You're listening to Plenary Session. Today, you're in for a real treat. We'll have our interview with today's premier guest, Dr. Brian Kavanaugh, who's the chairman of Radiation Oncology at the University of Colorado and former Astro president. Dr. Kavanaugh stopped by the studio over the holidays, and he has a lot of wisdom to share. So stay tuned. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Brian Kavanaugh. Dr. Kavanaugh is the Chairman of Radiation Oncology at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Center. Uh, He is a practicing radiation oncologist. He has a long career in academic medicine, and he's going to share some of those insights with us today. Oh, I should also mention, of course, he was very recently the ASTRO, which is their professional organization, president. Dr. Kavanaugh did his medical school at Tulane University in New Orleans, and he's from New Orleans. Is that correct, Dr. That Kavanaugh? is correct. That's correct. Then you went on to do your residency at Duke University. Then you spent a few years in that area. Uh, by that I mean south of Washington, D.C., when you moved up to Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. After a while there, you moved to the University of Colorado. Uh, and you moved to be the, to be the chairperson. No, I was a bit more junior at the time. I see. It, it was a good time to make a move. It was after about seven or eight years in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us come to those milestones in the career at maybe seven or ten year cycles and need to look around and scan the horizon and see if there's maybe another opportunity, time to make a move. And so that is the right, it was the right time for me. And it was a very attractive place to go at the time. It was mm-hmm. very much a very much a wide open feel. There was a new facility and a very energetic vibe. The cancer center director there is a very dynamic and charismatic individual named Paul Bunn, who mm-hmm. really had done a good job of establishing a wonderful multidisciplinary environment. And so I was just lucky to be more or less in the right place at the right time. It worked out well for me to make a move, and uh, it's been a good ride. I see. So that was how many years ago now? Ah, that was 2001, which I can timestamp because it was the year of 9-11. I got there shortly before then, so I, I can remember exactly where I was at that time. For I sure. see. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then how many years into your tenure there did you, uh, did you become the chairperson? I became interim late 2014 and then permanent chair, if you will, because, of course, nothing's ever permanent. Then uh-huh. I could change any minute, but uh-huh. that was in early 2016. I see. And that was 2016 was, year, was the year of your Astro presidency. It was. So the 2016-2017 year culminating in the 2017 meeting where you were a wonderful keynote oh, speaker. <laughs> I must say it was the highlight of the show. Oh, thank you. I, very I, kind. I, I was really thrilled that we were able to get you there. I'll, I'll and, pay for that later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it was a fantastic show. You know, I think that was really good. And I, and I hope that uh, it might have helped people begin to – well, I don't want to take any credit because you've had a fantastic career of your own, okay? But I mean, I think you were you were still maybe transitioning from this, with all due respect, mm-hmm. creature of Twitter. Um, <laughs> That's right, yeah. You know, world pundit, cyber pundit. Uh-huh. And, and I think a lot of people knew a little bit from your papers, more and more from Twitter. More from Twitter, probably. That's true. And then I would hope people would then begin to take the time to watch some of your lectures because the talk you gave there was fantastic. And oh, thank you. It's very it, kind. If, if you download it and see it, you, you could appreciate immediately that when you approach a topic, it's with 
academic integrity and depth of understanding and sophistication of statistics and all those sorts of things. So for those of you who might not have known your full, the full, the full spectrum of Vinay uh-huh. Prasad, uh-huh. I hope it, but anyway, now it's, I'm really excited that you're branching out into new media and you're doing a great job with this oh, thank podcast. Thank you, it's very kind. Yeah, I think that, um, uh, I, I like social media a great deal. And we're gonna talk about that. Um, and uh, But I do think you're right in the sense that a lot of people can be come across as unidimensional. Uh, and that's in part because when you are tweeting, you wanna just get right to the punchline. And sure. you don't wanna, you know, and you can't always present all the nuance and caveats and that sort of thinking. And, um, and also all of the evidence that goes into your thinking. But with a lecture, of course, you can do more. And with a podcast, you can do a lot. Uh, so that's, a, that's something I've been enjoying. Um, but I appreciate the opportunity to speak there. It was a great, great meeting. And um, I, I think it, um, it did introduce me to a lot of people in radiation oncology, uh, some of whom I, you know, we've collaborated a little bit on some of these projects, um, looking at social media and Twitter and Well, you, you definitely have a fan base within the field. You no, have, that's good. I would say you have uh, maybe protege is a strong word, but there are those who are emulating how, how you've approached it. And I think in a good way, the, the, uh-huh. in, in the sense of, wanting to share frank and honest opinions and put some occasional contrarian thoughts out there and it's really okay to be iconoclastic at, at times when appropriate. Now before we uh, started recording we were talking a little bit about um, social media and Twitter yes. and, and you're also on Twitter and, and tell listeners what your handle is. It's very boring, but it was intentional. It's a mask. It's just BK radiation. And and the reason I did that was almost, it was to remind myself that at the moment I was entering that space, it was as a representative of an organization, really. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I was going to get instant, you know, a certain number of followers just because of that, that particular, you know, platform that I had at the moment. And that's okay. And I, you know, maybe have warmed up to it a little bit and tried to be, uh, you know, more and more communicative in, in various different ways. But understanding, of course, that in that role, I, I, I'm i very much promoting an agenda. I mean, not, not a bad agenda. You're a diplomat for your organization. I suppose so. And I, I don't mean to be sounding self-important in that regard. No, but, but I mean, you, like, you're an ambassador for Astro, and that's how you saw yourself in social media. I, I did. And yeah. so with, it, with the revised strategic plan, which includes things like promoting diversity and equality and things like that, so I really, I want to do that. There are some really mm-hmm. fantastic rising stars who are female radiation oncologists whom I wanted to really celebrate their accomplishments and promote that. So I spend a certain amount of time doing that, retweeting their things, just complimenting them, which is really important because it's, it's a fantastic thing. So there's that. I, you know, I've occasionally stepped into one or two contentious debates <laughs> and tried to maybe moderate or mitigate the tension mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. and just sort of you know, recognize draw that. some sort of compromise middle line or uh, yeah a little bit of that or diffuse some of the uh the tension and bring it back to the issue that kind of thing i've seen you like that like a, a elder statesman it seems uh, i guess uh, so yeah. yeah elder more and more elder by the minute is the <laughs> funny thing about that yeah so but i do i do aspire you know i I've, as we were joking beforehand maybe in a year or two when i can shed that particular mask and go out there in the world as the real person, maybe I'll really cut loose. I don't know. Maybe not. <coughs> I might not have the guts, but we'll see. I don't know. I think it's interesting, though, because I, I didn't share you my thoughts on it, but I do think it is a little bit of um, you're coming to Twitter sort of at a, at a having achieved a lot in your career. Uh, a lot of us, you know, it was something that we started doing when we were fellows, right? You know, so we're at the very beginning. I think that kind of arc is, it's a very different arc. Uh, I think um, people who may have achieved a lot already 
are naturally a little bit more reticent about you know newer forms of media uh, than people who have nothing to lose, so well, to speak. Yeah, I guess. So I think there's some truth to that. Sure. I guess I would say that there were moments earlier in my career when I, I to be honest, wrote a few things that might have annoyed some people, uh-huh. uh, some editorials and some position statements and whatnot. Of course, it's, what can I say, those get buried in letters to the editor and journals that no one reads. So. So, but, but that's the difference, right? Yeah. That's the difference between social media because um, those things were buried and people didn't read yeah. them. And now we, they, we finally see those kind of really getting amplified often. Yeah. No, it's a good thing. And I, I think the openness and transparency is really good. You're right, because I, I, right, the, they were largely buried, except for the few people who sent me death threats and things like that. But apart from that, <laughs> mostly everyone ignored them. It's true. Uh, and I won't go through the titles of the particular editorials because they would, they would re-annoy anyone who has to be listening who rem- remembers that. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's why that guy didn't, I didn't like him. But anyway. But you yeah. also point out that there are some people out there um, who, um, you know, are accomplished investigators who occasionally throw some elbows out there. <laughs> I know who you're thinking of. <laughs> no, I love it. Okay, let's give a couple of examples. I mean, yeah. I, I think the world of Ralph Flexible, Ralph I mean, you know Ralph. And yeah. he is, so he's at a point in his career, and I have tremendous respect, where he really is, a very accomplished guy, been there, done that. Really wants to say a few more things, has a, you know a few more yeah. opinions to render, and somebody has to do that. I mean, great for him that someone says some of the things that many of us are still reluctant to be as forthright about. I'll just say that. And just so listeners know, Ralph Wexelbaum is the chairman of Radio Oncology at the University of Chicago, where I went to medical school, and so I know him from from those years. And he is uh, a, a sharp a sharp commentator on Twitter, especially for things that he thinks are, um, I think, bad medical practices or you know dubious things we're engaging in. Dare we say unfiltered? I don't know. Yeah, I'd say he's, so. He's, he's, uh, it's okay. We need that. We do need that. Um, and I think he's in a position where um, he can't be hurt. No it can't one can be hurt. hurt. Yeah, no, it it's okay. Hurt. Yeah. He's safe. So, radiation oncology. What made you go into radiation oncology? <laughs> you things happen by chance. You know, I, I remember I was in medical school and. Okay, this is yeah, more anachronisms. Okay, we're, we're, this is this is um, we're talking old and new technology mm-hmm. and more. So, so when I say I pulled something off the bulletin board, I literally pulled something <laughs> off the bulletin board. People don't even have an understanding of what a bulletin, an yeah. actual physical bulletin board, which might have had a sheet of paper with little teeth-like <laughs> extensions on uh-huh. it that had been cut out, and, and, and it, you'd rip one of those off. Exactly. Wow. Or if you were strategic and you wanted it, you'd rip all of them off. Oh, and I see. Yeah. So, so exactly. <laughs> so in this particular case, it was uh, it was an ad for something. A, a summer research fellowship at MD Anderson Hospital, which, okay, you have to understand, I'm growing up in New Orleans, okay, mm-hmm. which there is no more humid and warm place in the summer than New, New Orleans. Orleans. And, mm-hmm. and and so like the concept of going to Houston didn't didn't throw me off so badly. <laughs> I it was see, like, well, yeah. it's just the same heat and humidity, whereas yeah. other people from other parts of the country might the, not. A uh, summer in Houston of 100 days over 100 degrees <laughs> is uh, off-putting. Yeah. I think that's a great thing. But anyway, yeah. it worked out well for me, and I happened to be by chance in this program matched up with... And it was a radiation biology program? No, no, no. It was just a random medical student research program, and you just sent your CV in and and applied for this thing. And then you were just randomly assigned to one of 50 or so different researchers. And I happened to be, I had an engineering background and maybe that's why they saw and say, okay, well, I was just sticking with the radiation guy over there. I see. And oh, it was, really? It was, that, it was that serendipitous. Exactly. Had, had it not been for being paired with this radiation oncologist. 
I would have never become familiar with the field. No, absolutely. I see. A guy named Tyvin Rich, a uh, super nice guy. He's kind of a GI, radiation oncology guy. He'd been at UVA. Uh, and then, no, sorry, he'd, he'd uh, been at MGH before he went to MD Anderson. He went back later to UVA. He was chair at UVA for a while. So I uh, know, and he was a very uh, funny guy, likable guy. And we worked on a few things. The first summer I was messing around with radiation and 5 few experiments. <laughs> and, uh, uh-huh. and the next summer it was more of a chart review project. And those were back in the good old days when um, we would give 5-FU any which way under the sun. You know, <laughs> there's a difference between 5-FU bolus and 5-FU continuous and mm-hmm. 5-FU over 96 hours and 5-FU over 72 hours and mm-hmm. 5-FU with a bolus and then a continuous strip. You could give 5-FU many different ways. And, and mm-hmm. I think people sometimes forget that um, you get responses over and over again uh, to some degree, you know. Uh, uh- Five is a classic drug. It's 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 a drug of all time. One of the best, I mean, we were talking about we were just yeah. in a different context. We were talking about this. I don't think that I don't think that guy Charles Heidelberger gets enough credit. You know, the guy who invented it because mm-hmm. I mean, he was very clever when he did that. I mean, it, it seems boring at the time. I don't know how we got off on this tangent because we talked about this before. But um, it's you know you could argue it was the original targeted agent. I mean, he had he had a target in mind. Certain aspects of DNA replication and metabolism and he thought certain chemicals would mess that up he played around with fluorinated pyrimidines and Mm -hmm. um, came up with some good ones anyway it's yeah it's it's uh, it's funny but it's 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 still a drug that does some good yeah yeah and i think that's one point i always like to make is that even though it's an older drug and you've had it for years it's actually i think generally well tolerated has some advantages even to some of these newer drugs that we think so highly of like sapecitabine uh because it doesn't have the hand foot syndrome that sapecitabine you know can be can be so devastating um but let's go back to this radiation. <laughs> so, so, so you you did this radiation biology um, summer program yes. at MD Anderson, piqued an interest, and uh, and then you applied in radiation oncology. I did. And yes. back in in those days, as it, it, it what I I, I want to put this very tactfully. Uh, these days, it is abundantly <laughs> clear that the people who go into radiation oncology are the best and the brightest. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You can look at it by any metric, by you know board score, by publications, by AOA, by step one, by whatever metric you want to look at, people going to radiation oncology today are some of the brightest students in biomedicine. Uh, and and that's great for your field. It, it, the point being, I sneaked in before that. <laughs> was that what I was going to ask? Know, was, okay. was it like that back then? <laughs> it's, it's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that if that's it's okay. Well, I, I, I was the same way. You know, University of Chicago, the years after I graduated, they had a program where um, they'll admit fewer students and they'll pay for everyone's like full tuition. And of course, their, um, their rank went up in the U.S. News rankings. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm proud of the fact that I went there before any of that happened. So I was <laughs> glad to glad to get in on the ground yeah. floor. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'd like to think I was a creditable student, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway. No, but, it was, but it wasn't ultra competitive, or was it? I, I don't, you know, it's hard to say. It just is what it is. It's funny because, okay, so it was before there was a match. Oh, boy. Okay, that's one thing. And so you went around and you applied, and there were all sorts of just deals being made on, on, this, on the surface. I'll tell you one other. Okay, if you must have another embarrassing story, I'll tell you one more. Uh, I was applying, and so I had, I had done a a rotation at Duke and then one or two other places. And then I went back to interview at Duke. At the time they wanted to do a combined internship and then residency program. Okay, and the internship was gonna be six months of surgery and six months of medicine and separate residency. And I, I think the statute of limitations has, has <coughs> expired on this one. I'll just tell you the story that was. So when I went back to interview for that part, I had to interview with uh, 
the surgeons, okay? And Duke I, surgeons. Yeah. And then just so listeners know, this is an ominous group of people. Yeah. I once heard a rumor, Okay, is it about yeah. divorce? No, 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 go, okay. ahead, go, go. Oh, yeah. the rumor I heard about Duke surgery was for a long time they would proudly tell applicants that they had a hundred and ten percent divorce rate because one resident got divorced twice. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> so actually, I didn't just interview with any surgeon. I interviewed with David Sabiston himself. Really? Okay, uh-huh. yeah. So, so it's interesting because you know he had it's a beautiful place. You know, I mean, a lovely campus, and and his his office was was recessed within there. There's a there's a receptionist. Um, Sort of like the outer office, and then there was an inner office, and then there was the Holy of Holies where, uh, where he was. But you know, here's the funny thing: I got in there. Of course, I could have, would have, should have been nervous. But for some reason, there was a, a real serenity about him, and he was the most gracious gentleman, and very polite. And I thought things went well, and I really think they did. I, th- I think he had a soft spot for people from Tulane because he'd had mm-hmm. a number of people from there. And so then, you know, I got through that, and I take this big sigh of relief. And I'm like, oh, okay, wow, that, I survived that. And so then I went to meet with a fellow on the medicine side, mm-hmm. and here's where I guessed wrong, okay? Because he asked what I thought was a reasonably straightforward question, which was, well, uh, you know, what do you, you know, why do you want to come to here, <laughs> and uh, you know, why would you, why would you be interested in coming here? And I thought that was a lead. To say, well, it's, you know, it's one of the most wonderful institutions in in the country. It's, it's yeah. renowned for its research, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And I went down that road, and apparently that was the wrong road to go down. Hmm. Um, the re- the better road to go down was the road of, I, you know, wanted to do good patient care and that sort of thing. And he didn't hear that from me. I'll hear the research. And so he didn't want to hear that, and he wanted to hear something different. And so I was able to get accepted into the residency program. I was accepted into the surgery half of the internship, but the internal medicine people did not want me to go there. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm serious. So what did you do for six months? Oh, well, I took a, I, I stayed at Charity Hospital for a full year. I in see. Louisiana. So that was, I mean, that was a great experience. I don't know if, you ever, if you're at all familiar with that, but that was one of those sort of grand old public hospitals. Okay, mm-hmm. it was associated with both the LSU and Tulane Medical Schools mm-hmm. in New Orleans. It was this wonderful old Art Deco building, mm-hmm. and you know it had its heyday in the 30s and 40s and 50s mm-hmm. when when things were you know different. And, and it provided um, care for the most vulnerable people in New Orleans. Yeah, it was a catchment hospital, exactly. Mm-hmm. It was a public hospital, and so it was a very um, a, a very strong experience. I mean, I got to see a lot and do a lot, and so it was it was really okay, but. But if you must know, that's my origin story. <laughs> I see. You know, that's interesting to me because I think you do hit on a very interesting point, which is that um, there oftentimes there are people looking for certain answers in these kinds of interviews. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a very quick window to read into them. And yeah. you, you often play the odds games because mm-hmm. you know that statistically uh, the classic answer, of course, you know, why do you want to go to medical? Because I like science. I like to help people. And, you know, you pick yeah. three things that are sure. kind of who could argue with that. Um, and in this case, there, there were a lot of people that uh, they would have really liked that re- hear that, that the researchers said. Can I give you another wrong yeah. answer I gave just okay. because we're on this topic? Okay. So I was interviewing uh, for residency at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. And this was, again, I'm looking around and research ecology. And, and of course, there had been this, at the time, there was a, a large green book that described all programs and I guess gave them facts and figures as much as anything, like you know, number of patients, number of faculty, and that sort of thing. And so I had looked through this large green book 
not knowing that much about the field, but looking at, oh, okay, these are certain big programs. They have a lot of patients there, and, and this is, oh, UPenn is one of them. That sounds like a good thing, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, I'm at the, uni- <laughs> at the interview at UPenn. You know where this is going, right? The guy asks me, why, why is it that uh, you'd be interested in this thing? And I think, well, I can't really tell him the truth. I have to say, well, I'm looking around at the, at the pictures of all the famous you know, faculty mm-hmm. members, previous faculty members. Well, <clears throat> this place has a wonderful legacy of accomplishment and terrific faculty members and this and thing. And I'm going on and on like that. And <clears throat> sure enough, the guy says, he, he reaches down, he pulls something from his, his desk drawer. He, he says, yeah, you know... I always wonder why people just don't look at this green book. And he's answering. He's like, I was like, yeah, too late. I blew that one too. So, <laughs> so close. If only I said the truth on that one. Oh, well. But anyway, it's just funny how you look back on things. And I don't know. It's, uh, things work out. It was, it was all good. For the one interview question, I, so I think it's interesting as, as we go through our careers in academic medicine, because the longer you go, there gets to be a point where there really are no real interview questions. People already know what you're about and what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're starting out, of course, there's lots of these interview questions. And a lot of them center on like, you know, what are you going to do in the future kind of thing. I remember once I went to an interview and I was getting grilled with these kind of, I don't know, psychology questions of tell me about a difficult situation, how you overcame it and these kinds of things. And and I just, you know, I really hate those questions. Uh, and then I just pointed out that um, I just said, you know, I just want to take a second and, and make a little aside here. Um, the reason you ask these questions is you're trying to predict how good a job that I'll do, you know, in this position. And I will tell you that these questions have kind of been rigorously studied for that predictive value. And actually, they have like very, very poor criterion validity. <laughs> and it's like actually the worst thing you could have. And of course, that didn't go over so well because right. no one likes being questioned about their questions. Yes. I think the only one that works is supposed to be like, what do you know about this organization, right? Isn't that <laughs> yeah. like that? And, and I've heard that. Um, I mean, ironically, many of the standardized tests that we disparage do have slightly higher validity scores than, you know, they're slightly better predictors of job performance or say how somebody does in their first year college grades than some of these other kind of questions. And then I've heard that, um, and looking at the statistics, that it seems like one class of questions that seemed to do slightly better was, you know, it's 3 a.m. in the morning and you get paged and the patient's tachycardic. What are you going to do? You know, like really kind of pragmatic about the job, kind of mm-hmm. problem solving questions. What are you going to do? Um, but I'm no expert on the interview. And, uh, and and I guess over the years, I've kind of actually have like put, it's human nature to weigh your conversation with someone higher than like looking through their body of work. Mm-hmm, but I mm-hmm. think I've tried like actively to switch that. Uh, yep, mm-hmm. I know what you mean. So let me ask, so that's how you got into radiation oncology. Mm -hmm. In a way, I think, um, and let me see if you agree with me, I I think oncology broadly, radiation oncology, surgical oncology, medical oncology, Mm -hmm. I think it's the most interesting thing in all of biomedicine. And and on this podcast, you know, I talk about some cardiology papers from time to time. And the reason I do that is because there's some interesting things there. One thing that they have that's very interesting to me is they have like mechanical procedures they do to improve people's subjective symptoms like dyspnea mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. And I think that gets into lots of interesting issues about evidence and blinding. And we're about to talk about blinding in a little bit. Um, but I think when you talk about a complex disease that, um, you 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 never master always leaves you humble um is a f- something formidable something and something that has great human impact and is worth thinking about and worth you know trying to do better at um and you think about the complexity of number of diagnoses how heterogeneous it is how um, presentations are so varied how in 
each different tumor type, there's so many unique things you need to know to kind of go from being just good at it to being great at it and how you know you always feel like you're learning. Uh, there's no field that's as good as oncology. What do you think? <laughs> well, I you know I've enjoyed being in it my career. <clears throat> I must say, had I <laughs> if I were thinking about it right now, it seems not so complex. I mean, I, I, I almost <laughs> it's so off-putting that there's so there's a just a flood of knowledge I've come around in the last you know ten years or so with a, I understand that we haven't mastered this knowledge. Mm-hmm. I understand that we have more tests we can do than yeah. actions to take with them. And and you've made great points about that in, in a lot of your commentaries. Having said that, it, it is it is uh, you know scientifically comp- so much more complex than it was even you know I can tell you when I started. I mean it was it was it was not there. I don't mean to disparage anything else in medicine. I mean I'm I'm thankful for good pulmonologists. I'm thankful course, for good yeah. endocrinologists. I mean I I go to the pituitary tumor board because you know radiation therapy has a small role to play in pituitary tumors at times here and there. And I hear them talk about all the, the nuances of the endocrinology yeah. pathways, and I just like, wow, I have, <laughs> I have forgotten so much information that I might have once known partially for a test or something. I don't yeah. know, but there's a lot of nuance and complexity there too. And so, and I think it is true that a lot of other fields of medicine are gaining steam in the same regard with added complexity of, of you know, the knowledge base that needs to be held in mind or at least held on your laptop for doing it but I, but I do think there's there is something existential about a cancerous tumor inside a body that might suddenly take root and be your own worst enemy your own body turning against yourself there is something still fearsome about that and I I, I know it's it's got a certain uh, you know resonance for a lot of different people but it's it is good. I mean, I, I suppose it's 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 often easier to be. I mean, you know, it's 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 quite easy to be sympathetic immediately with a patient who's facing a serious malignant disease. They they really do have something to worry about. They mm-hmm. really are facing their own mortality a lot of times. And so, I guess we can say that that's that makes our job easier and, and such. I've, I you know, I'm very sympathetic to how hard it is to be a primary care physician. I mean, my mm-hmm. wife's a primary care physician and she has to face a lot of challenges that are hard. I mean, patients are very um, needy at times, you know, and and maybe they don't have an immediately life-threatening condition, but they may be struggling with uh, leaning towards a substance dependence or one of the other you know challenges you're going to face in the primary the the million things of primary care. So I'm I'm very sympathetic to that. I have to be quick yeah. to point that out. Yeah, but yeah. I do think that oncology yeah. is a great field. It's a great field, and and I think you put it you put it well. Uh, you're you're wearing your astro president hat. I see you're being a uh, diplomat. I guess. <laughs> uh, but but I think you're right that you know I I bet you threw us in another field and you make us do it for a decade. We're going to really like it a great deal. That's just the kind of people we are. Um, but I do think you're right. Your sympathy is high. Um, it's a condition that matters. Often it kind of trumps everything else on the problem list and you know all those problems go to the back burner while we deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's a privilege, I think, sometimes to be so close to someone when they deal with something that eventually will be so central to, I think, their life. Um, you know, you get to interact with people and they're very open with you and they mm-hmm. share a lot that um, it, 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 it is what it means to be the privilege of being a doctor. Yeah, I agree. Let me ask you about radiosensitization. <laughs> what what does this word mean? Oh, that's a great. What question. is a radiosensitizer? Yeah, we were chatting a little bit beforehand, and maybe we'll talk about some studies that have to do with that. It it's 
you know, it's it's a it's the holy grail, the radio sensitizer. It's this notion that we can maybe identify a substance that would magnify all the effects of radiation therapy that we would like to have magnified, all the anti the tumorocidal effects. Mm-hmm. And have minimal effect, if possible, on other. That's the perfect radio sensitizer. Minimal effect in terms of magnifying any any of the ill effects or side effects or toxicities. And 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 we had, you know, I know beforehand touched on this because in our in our conversation we we're talking about how five FU was designed in a mm-hmm. sense as maybe as radio yeah. sensitizer. That the other thing is that you're hoping that one plus one is more than two, right? You're hoping that you can get an effect from the radiation, maybe some small effect from the agent itself, but the two of them together somehow synergistically will do more than either either by themselves. And so it's, it's been a much sought after uh, aspirational goal for so many researchers over the past 60, 70 years. And they've come close here and there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some would also argue that as a purist, if you wanted to say the the purest radio sensitizer would be oxygen, right? Because in the right. absence of oxygen, there's less effect. There Free is, radical is, formation. Exactly. Damage, there's, yeah. there's, you don't get to stabilize that. And so it, but, but oxygen itself. And so, so and there's been, oh, gosh, dozens of studies which have tried from one direction or another to exploit that, to either send more oxygen somehow or another never quite getting it there. It's trickier than it seems, but uh, that would be the, the ideal one, right? That would, that would be, I suppose. Uh, Let me ask a dumb question. Is, is the therapeutic effect of radiation mediated solely through DNA damage, or is it thought to me- be mediated through other cellu- destructive cellular pathways or uh, antigen presentation? Well, everything's gotten so complicated yeah. now, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and all the things that we used to assume and take for granted are maybe not so obvious. I. I think there are definitely other pathways apart from mm-hmm. classic D- DNA, DNA and clonogenic cell death. I think we now know that in the absence of a functioning immune system, things don't work so well either. And going back to your friend Ralph, I mean, Ralph yeah. and he's one of the several folks who, whose groups established that, <clears throat> you know, in the preclinical sense, you, you can't get nearly the effect with in a murine model without an intact immune system that you're going to get with an immune system. So even from radiobiology. Yeah, even a- from radiation. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, And I think that plays out in real-life people. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, it's... Uh, so that answer is... is yeah, but I know, think that, that does suggest that it's more than just a DNA damage effect. I think so, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other pathways that are triggered. Yeah, you know, by radiation. Have you read the book Henry Kaplan and the History of Hodgkin's Disease? Long time ago, I looked at that. Yeah. Yes, he's. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a book I recommend highly to the readers, and it's just because it's. Um, well, as listeners may not know, but Henry Kaplan was a Stanford radiation oncologist uh, and probably one of the pioneers of radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's a story of basically how Hodgkin's lymphoma was, uh, in, at least in, as late as the 1940s, thought to be incurable, um, and then Henry Kaplan utilized radiation therapy um, and was able to elicit some long-term durable remissions, albeit at the price of great toxicity. Mm -hmm. In your career, the same person with Hodgkin's lymphoma who you'd have radiated many years ago, Mm -hmm. and now you'd radiate, uh, a lot has changed. Yes, absolutely. That's that's, that's a great irony, I mean, because you can say that, I mean, to some extent the field became sophisticated on the basis of treatment of Hodgkin's lymphoma. I mean, there were all these very elegant patterns of failure studies to elucidate the behavior of that and how How it spreads and where to to radiate next, right? Exactly, totally. And now it's, uh, you know, as you know, so many systemic agents have been 
refined and the usage of them, the combinations of them have been really tailored to good effect that it's... We're trying to shut you out. Understood. No, that was, <laughs> yeah. that was the, we're going to bury those under accelerators. I think that was, that was, yeah. was that, uh, it wasn't Rosenberg, it was the other guy. It was DeVita. I think, I think it was said DeVita. A long time that, yeah, ago. yeah. yeah. We'll okay, so we, we plan to bury those things. But the problem was they didn't anticipate that the role of radiation therapy in other tumor types has been exponential growth. Well, well, we had to scramble and find something to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> These machines, we have to use them. Yeah, uh, yeah no, no, no. I mean, it's, but that's, you know, that's, <clears throat> but that's a good, th- I like your, your point there because, it, it in the more modern context for putting aside lymphoma just narrowly yeah. per se, I think that that's um, emblematic of a challenge that a lot of specialties face when there is another solution to the problem they were trying to fix. You know, and we can everyone's followed a lot of stories in cardiology. Come back to cardiology, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of questions have been raised about whether certain interventions mm-hmm. are, cardi- always uh, are always necessary. Yeah. Are always necessary. Have they can you manage them medically and that sort of thing. Uh, this is an example when, you know, radiation maybe, you know, it's not so you know, <clears throat> maybe not so much of it is needed in certain disease conditions. And there's all kinds of examples of where the course of radiation treatment given to a patient can be trimmed and tailored and shortened here and there. And mm-hmm. those are good things for patients. And yet those are sometimes uncomfortable things for a field to face and to sort of maybe... Some of those debates that you insert yourself with, in mm-hmm. uh, they're often mm-hmm. around some of these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I want to I make this point, which is I sometimes hear people say things like, oh, um, you know, radiation... It's not, it's not an important modality in cancer care. Uh, it's not as important as it once was. That is highly overstated and ridiculous. It's like the same people who say that like, oh, soon you won't be a lymphoma doctor and you won't be a lung cancer doctor. There'll be just like a, a PI3 kinase doctor, an, and ALK, bre- an, ALK doctor, an ALK doctor, a BRAF right. doctor. Yeah. Um, these are highly overstated things. Radiation uh, is the mainstay of cancer care. It has saved lives, many lives with many malignancies. Uh, it's not going away anytime, not, certainly not in neither of our lifetime uh, is it going away. And um, yet, if there are a few small rural places where we can give less of it, preserve the efficacy and have less toxicity, and perhaps a few other small cases where maybe we'll talk about oligometastatic disease, we might, there may be a role for it where it didn't previously exist or radiating the prostate in people with, uh, uh, yeah, uh, based on the new stampede study. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although there's some questions there. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, we, we will always work on refining it, but to, to, to think that it's going away anytime soon, that's a foolish thing to think, just as it's foolish to think that we're going to be doctors of certain genetic mutations in the near future, maybe in a thousand years, but not yet. I'll pay for that comment later. <laughs> <laughs> completely agree. Thank you for saying that. Let's talk a little bit about um, this paper that came out in The Lancet, which um, was presented during, a- during Astro. Yes. Um, cisplatin versus cetuximab mm-hmm. in combination with radiotherapy mm-hmm. for head and neck squamous cell cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, cisplatin is an old drug. It goes back many years. And my understanding is it was actually developed at uh, my alma mater, Michigan State University, uh, where it was a um, astute uh, a scientist who noticed that it would uh, the platinum electrodes uh, would kill off uh, E. coli growing in the dish uh, when you ran a current through it. And it was a cisplatinum addict that actually was responsible for that DNA damage and death. Uh, and it has become um, uh, 
perhaps one of the most important drugs in all of oncology. Uh, it's cured diseases like testicle cancer, which without platinum, uh, odds are not great. With platinum, odds are much better, and it is a mainstay of therapy for many tumor types. Fast forward to the late 1990s and the rise of monoclonal antibodies, and we saw cetuximab made by Imclone. Uh, it's a famous drug because it was the drug that Martha Stewart got um, <laughs> busted for for insider trading. Cetuximab mm-hmm. so is an anti-EGFR drug. Um, it is used in head and neck cancer. It's used in colorectal cancer for people who don't have RAS spectrum mutations. Uh, and it briefly flirted with lung cancer a bit in some trials called FLEX, which are kind of some problematic studies, I think. Um, but needless to say, it's, it's used in a few tumor types. It has a nasty side effect, the rash. And the rash is often the telltale sign that you got the drug. And this is a very unique rash. And when you see the rash, you can sometimes see it in somebody across the room. And you're like, oh boy, that person's on cetuximab. Um, Yet, it was pursued as a holy grail medicine in radiation oncology because it is a radiosensitizer. Yes. (laughs) I I think, and and I want to characterize this. I want to preface this by saying, I think the people who were really, who were working on that are really good people, okay? And, And really close friends of mine. And one of the leaders of the charge was a guy named Paul Harari. I mean, he followed me. He's, you know, an astro, your president, and your chair for your immediate past chair, which means you're the crotchety guy who sits in the corner. That's where I am right now, just to kind of, <laughs> keep, just to kind of point out to, at uh-huh. the meetings, oh, yeah, we thought of that five years ago. It didn't work, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyway, so Paul Paul's a really good friend, and so he was one of the key people working on that. Sincerely interested in trying to come up with something that would be better than perhaps chemotherapy agents as a way of enhancing things. And so that study that came out in 2006 where it was first shown to be better than radiation alone, nothing control uh-huh. arm was a landmark study, and it got a lot of attention. And it was a hoped-for advance in the direction of finding new and sophisticated and clever ways of doing things and and adding to our treatment armamentarium and that sort of thing. This is Bonner, two thousand six. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Second author is Paul Harari. That one. So yeah, and a lot of other good folks uh, contributed to that. And so it's it's. Um, you know, I think it was, it's one of the things where, you know, we, we, you talk a lot about the different biases people have in mm-hmm. terms of how to interpret or how to, you know, think about a trial. I, I, w- I would characterize the bias or the the mindset of some of the people who might have been very intimately involved in this particular thing is maybe the way that, I don't know, people are either, maybe they're either Red Sox or Yankees fans or something like that. You know, they have sort of a rooting interest in something after a while. I call it an intellectual conflict of interest, if you Alle- will. Allegiance bias. I suppose uh-huh. so. That's a nice way to say it, Yeah. And so it was disappointing that this particular result, I can say, was a little disheartening to a lot of people, I think, because, not. I mean, okay, it's a better thing for patients. We figured out, okay, between two choices, choice A, choice B, this is now a better choice for patients. Here it is. But I will say that I think it was met with some disappointment because people thought that they had maybe gone a little bit past mm-hmm. something of a more traditional nature because, well, you know, maybe always people are wanting to be. But be that as it may, um, it's... Um, you know, it is. It's funny. I look back at that original study, the mm-hmm. study that you know had the control arm versus this detoxamab. I mean, I tend to wonder, even in that particular study, where there might have been some undiagnosed uh, metastatic disease. No. Well, no, just in the interpretation uh, and, uh-huh. and, and conduct of that study, where it was thought that the toxicities were not so different. You just wonder if there was something of an observer bias in that regard, because I can tell you, I'll, I'll just tell you a little 
side story. Wait, but let me let me explain to listeners real quick about this oh, with the trial show. Sorry. So I guess the two trials that uh, that Dr. Kavanaugh is alluding to is this original study in the New England Journal of Medicine, which randomized patients with locally advanced head and squamous cell cancer right. to radiation therapy with or without cetuximab. Correct. And that was a trial that showed an overall survival advantage, which mm-hmm. is, you know, kind of unusual for the lo- locally advanced setting. Sure. Uh, it's it's a good sign, um, as well as a toxicity profile that was thought to be very tolerable and perhaps not that much worse than radiation. It got a lot of adherence, and people really believed in cetuximab plus RT. Platinum also is a backbone of therapy, and a lot of us on the other side of the spectrum, we really like platinum because we think platinum is highly efficacious, and actually the toxicity is 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 I don't want to say the the things I hate that people say, but actually it may it may not necessarily be worse than the cetuximab. Mm-hmm. Um, the new study looks at patients with P16 positive, HPV, favorable prognostic, local regional, head and exquamous cell cancer, randomizing to cisplatin plus RT versus cetuximab plus RT shows a local failure advantage with cisplatin and even a trend towards, or was it even statistically significant, overall survival advantage with cisplatin. So cetuximab looks like the loser and it's more toxic. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, so that's where we are. So in the aftermath of this, you're pointing out there were some people on the cetuximab bandwagon who it kind of stung to see this news. Yeah, it was disappointing. It's disappointing. You know, I would have to say. So I would, I would say that that was, it, it, you know, it was, it was presented as a plenary at the meeting this mm. past year and, um, you know, received well because it's good science. I mean, it was, no one can argue with the integrity of the trial and it was well reported, well studied, well conducted. And so there you go. You know, I, I, <clears throat> And again, my only personal anecdote I might yeah. share, just in you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You, you think of these things afterwards and, and you reflect on them afterwards. I can remember that I did actually have uh, a close family friend who was diagnosed with a cancer of this sort and treated with the combination. And for a couple of different um, lengthy reasons, was actually staying at her house to get the treatment. And so I had this interesting, unique, N equals one observational study going on. I was seeing someone who was going through the treatment. And, and I must say, it was, it was not exactly easy. I mean, it was challenging sort of treatment, as I'm sure the combination radiation and cysts would be also. Also, I would say that this one particular experience of observing this patient so close at hand pointed out a couple of other, well, secondary uh, lessons to me, if you will, because I know that this person was struggling for 23 hours of the day, but mm-hmm. that one hour of the day when he had to get up and go to the doctor, go to the doctor, mm-hmm. he, he he rallied and made it look good. And so I just, I, I know that patients are often trying to please their doctors and trying to, and, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't always clue into things. I mean, patient reported outcomes are, are a very important thing. And even patient reported outcomes, I think are probably fraught with. Yeah, they're trying minimi- to please the doctor. Minimization. Yeah. Minimization. Because no one wants to disappoint the doctor about that. And so I, th- I think just lo- in looking back at that and looking back at some of the original analyses of maybe whether that agent was or wasn't as toxic as people thought, there were probably people who wanted to be early doctors saying, no, your new drug is great. It's I'm, I'm doing great, doc. Yeah. I'm loving it, you know. And and, and that's just that's human nature. I mean, it's just um, many things can happen like that, that. I sometimes wonder about that because, you know, I've been in the room often for um, – some of the informed consent around some of these investigational drugs. And you know, providers are very enthusiastic. I mean, they mm-hmm. have to because it's their drug and they're working sure. on the trial. And and that really does kind of um, often lead someone to want to downplay the side effects because they come to be, the patient believes too that it's probably gonna be, they're hopeful as well, just like the doctor's hopeful. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think that like, what if we had spouse reported outcomes? But then I think that spouses exist on a spectrum as well. And there's some spouses who are willing to, oh, he's fine, you know, it's fine, it's no big deal. You know, they wanna, they wanna, play, you know, take it in order to get the spouse mm-hmm. to keep taking, but maybe yeah. there's some other spouse on the other end of the spectrum who'd be like, this is really hurting this person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think, you know, that's such an astute point because um, you're, you're basically on call 24 hours a day with this person. You, you mm-hmm. get to see this person mm-hmm. in a way that as a doctor, you don't get to see what they're going through. Yes. And it probably has further, in, you know, adds to the empathy you have for people going through these kinds of treatments. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, my experience with this drug is I, I'm not, I've never been a cetuximab fan because I find it's a, it's a very, it's a difficult drug to give um, because of the rash. Um, we use it a lot in colorectal cancer and there's, you know, people who want to use it up front. Um, I'm not entirely satisfied that we have clear randomized data that shows a survival advantage to giving it routinely upfront versus routinely in the last line just for people with extended spectrum RAS negative CRC. Uh, and by that by that logic, I like to defer it to the last line. And I think there are people like Len Saltz um, who agree with me, and he's written some commentaries on the topic, but that's besides the point. Um, so the head and neck cancer study, I think it's provocative because, you know, new, sexy, monoclonal antibody, non-chemotherapy, loses to old, cheap, stupid, dumb (laughs) chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. Um, not just in efficacy, but even in side effects. And I think that that does kind of run up against the hype train that we have in oncology. Um, It's a good teaching study because it forces, I think, trainees to realize that, you know, all that glitters is not gold. I think it's an interesting study. Now I wanted to ask you this about it, blinding. In some of these cancer trials, if we use a drug that has a idiosyncratic side effect, very noticeable side effect, Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as blinding. What do you think? No, you're right. And, you know, this is an example, Cetux is an example. All those studies with radiation with or without androgen deprivation therapy in prostate cancer yeah. are unblindable. I mean, yeah. you unless, know. unless you're going to trigger hot flashes somehow <laughs> artifactually. I don't right. know how to do that, but I don't think a patient would appreciate fake hot flashes because it's nobody's idea of a good time. But uh, So there will be these things. It's intrinsically built in, and I think it's an imperfection. I don't know how to solve that. I mean, I... If you have a clever idea, I, I, I just think that sometimes you can't. Yeah, I think sometimes you can't. I guess I would say... Um, we can talk about this problem broadly. Broadly, the problem here being um, when when you don't have blinding, there's certain endpoints in clinical trials that require provider or patient adjudication or preferences or thoughts. These are things like in cardiology, revascularization, because revascularization is a product of how much chest pain the patient has, plus the doctor's you know belief that revascularization will help them. There's some of these kind of what we call bias susceptible endpoints. There are other endpoints that are probably less susceptible to bias, like all-cause mortality kind of thing. Um, for certain drugs, like for instance, the SSRIs, I had Eric Turner on this podcast and we talked a little bit about how some of them give you a dry mouth and then the, the thing you're looking for is like improvement in depressive symptoms, the subjective endpoint. Those situations, maybe you think about put a little touch of atropine on the sugar pill to make it an active placebo so the patient can't tell if they're getting you know Prozac or you know a sugar tricky. pill with a dry, right. That's tricky. But in oncology, I think we're really stuck with our, you know, our backs against the wall because the side effects that patients are willing to bear in oncology far greater than what anyone would bear with heartburn or depression. Mm -hmm. And it would probably not be feasible or 
reasonable to you know try to have some sort of active placebo it will make somebody feel terrible uh, with no ostensible good reason so i think we do have our backs against the wall and just as you know testament to that fact that we are willing to bear more side effects we're one of the only fields in medicine that conduct our phase one studies just in terminally ill cancer patients and not healthy volunteers for that precise reason mm-hmm. um i wanted to shift gears and talk to you about social media okay Um, you have a vibrant community of radiation oncologists. Who were energized by you, too. I want to, I want you to know. <laughs> I, 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 they discovered you last year or so, I think, when... When yeah, I came <laughs> to many, Astro, yeah. Many, which is a great thing. And I think, you know, some have, dare we say... Emulated? Yeah. <laughs> dare we say. Sought, sought, <laughs> hold you as a role model of... Okay. of you know, integrity and, and, and fearlessness in terms of speaking truth and... That's a good thing. I, I think it's, you know, one, I, this little corner of medicine is a good one. I, I like the fact that it's awake and alive and, and good. I, I mean, I think I, I can't speak to all different subspecialties in medicine, how yeah. active each is in social media, but I think it's been fun to get to know a lot of people. I mean, I'm sure you've met, made new friends by that. Yeah, I mean, even you're, co-authors on papers and such. Exactly, like your buddy Oncology BG, right, Vishal, right? He's <laughs> yeah. a great guy. I happened to meet him at ASCO. And, yeah, I um, met him through, I think, uh, uh-huh. uh, Twitter, yeah. Yeah, no, and what a voice. I mean, just, just look at that one example. I mean, yeah. this guy from Nepal, Kathmandu, yeah. for crying out loud, yeah. who's become a world leader in you know oncology thought i mean how did that how could that have happened otherwise I 20 years know. ago probably would never have happened no it's... i mean and and uh and and not and i think Bashal's a very smart person as well of course but but it's it's not just being smart i mean there are lots of smart people in this world mm-hmm. who you know it's it's it had, it, he had an outlet for that and other people could see he's smart and that mm-hmm. didn't always exist in all periods of time no so that's fantastic and, and it's fascinating so uh and we mentioned you know a couple of the maybe more hmm, outspoken folks mm-hmm. I, I think I, I, uh, I did you call me an elder statement? <laughs> I think you did, and that's okay. And I'll, 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 I'll accept I said that. you played the elder statement. I, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's right. I hope so. We'll, I'll rewind know, the audio. Uh, that's okay. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I, I'd like to think that there are a few of of the of of the handful who've you know taken you know a cue from you really, and I think it's a good thing to be. Um, you know, critical, appropriately critical about new data coming out and, and that sort of thing. I, I'd like to think that every so often, maybe I'll communicate on the side and say, uh, you know, those words might have been a little on the stronger side mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and not for the purpose of, you know, you never want to censor anybody. No. And so, because, but there, but that, there is a, the occasional line that you probably shouldn't cross as far as, you know, as you know, personal attacks. Getting and, and it too personal, yeah. Exactly. No, I, I actually think it's um, it's even kind of counterproductive to the argument. You know, I think that people don't realize that when you're on Twitter and social media, you, you may not always change the mind of the person you're engaging with. Mm-hmm. But there's a big audience of people whose mind is a little bit open on this issue. Mm-hmm. Often I'm in that audience for certain issues where I don't know anything about, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm and I'm trying to get my mind made up. You know, there's this big discussion of whether or not the hospital readmission program, you know, improved mortality or worsened mortality. Right. I, I've been fighting about that last few days. Yes. Okay, here I'm. I have no skin in the game. I don't even, you know, I'm I, I'm a bystander. I'm trying to figure this out myself. Um, and there I would say that, you know, there's a certain line of like. Um, 
I think, wittiness and cleverness and, and, and fact-based argument that I think is very persuasive. And then when somebody devolves into kind of making it too personal or, or just to say that, oh, um, physicians can never do this type of research. Well, only economists can do this research. It's right. like, oh, God, kill me. I mean, what an argument. Oh, okay, oh, yeah. the physicians can never do No yes. one can do it except one economist on a hilltop. Okay, fine. That's yes. not an argument. It's not going to persuade the audience. Um, but that same person later, to their credit, actually did point out that I believe this paper is wrong because you didn't adjust for this and you didn't do this. And that is a little bit more persuasive to me as, a, as an audience. And so, you know, although in the heat of the moment, we can all stray from what we want to do. Uh, I think I, I think you're right in the sense to say, pull it back a little bit from making it too personal, bring it to the argument, and and still be you know punchy and edgy. It doesn't have to be boring. Yeah, and I, I mean, I want to point out, I would not bother to to mention that to someone that I didn't think highly of. I mean, uh, whose, whose opinions I, I who I think has really good opinions to share, and and you wouldn't tell Doctor Oz that. In other words, you're saying. <laughs> I don't think he follows me. He doesn't follow. Yeah, <laughs> but let me ask you: How do you actually? How do you use it in your in your day to day? You're you're a busy academic practicing uh, chairman, radiation oncologist. How do you, how are you using Twitter in your day? It is a major source of news for me. Really? I mean, medical news. Yeah. I mean, like you know the the latest you Radon know stu- studies. Well, yeah. Every study, yeah, sure. And so, as a matter of fact, I had to. Um, I was giving a talk somewhere, and you know, I I started up by saying, you know, this. There's, there's no possible way I can give you any new information. And I'd like to blame two of the people who invited me to this talk here because they are on Twitter all the time. And the minute something comes out at a, at a meeting, it's, it's broadcast. broadcast news, which is good. I mean, I'm joking, of course, because I think it's a fantastic thing. And, and that, that information is so quickly disseminated. Because who can possibly even be aware that the latest randomized study on some key topic that's relevant is even out there? I don't always know that. And I, you know, I try to take But so, no, I, I find it a very... A valuable source of of medical news and and you know scientific updates for me, clinical updates for me as a you practitioner. Most, mostly use it on the phone. I do, and you check it kind of between things, like when you're walking down the halls, you take a peek and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't want to admit how much green time I spend. You know, <laughs> my phone keeps track of it for me. It's probably too much. I understand, but yes, of course, no, it's on the elevators and in between things. And I turned on that feature, and then um, I've made it a kind of mission to like lower that screen time number. Um, yeah. To, to to not I, I you know to balance like getting what I want out of it but sure. not just being glued to it all the time mm-hmm. it, it is addictive and and my understanding is that they actually the designers of these products do things that you know try to hook your brain on it for instance like one thing is if you t- if like they del- sometimes delay replies or responses or retweets or likes to your content so that you don't see it right away it, in the hopes that um, Right when you tweet something, you, you want to check, did anyone like it? Did anyone like it? Did anyone like it? So now you're on for like three minutes instead of, you know, one minute, 15 okay. seconds. And so now they got you in for like a little, you know, a little bit more time. But I, I mean, uh, I have every, I'm 100% confident that the people who design these products have a great deal of time to ensure that the user uses the product as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess I would say that I want to get the value out of the product without being, you know, a pawn in their game. So I'm trying to break, break their addiction. So you know, I stop looking at a certain times, and I don't know. I got to the point where I can't argue every battle. You know, sometimes people just got to say something. That's that's the they get the last word. Congratulations. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. yeah, I agree. What is it like to? 
be in charge of other academic faculty. Uh, <laughs> is it heavy as the head that wears the crown? What is it like? Uh, it, it, it Somehow it feels like they're in charge of me. I don't know. It's a funny thing. <laughs> That's what there. I wondered, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's in, in human nature, in any group of more than... I don't know, three people, there will be politics, <laughs> and, uh, and any large enough group of uh, folks, you're going to have a spectrum of personalities. Uh, you know, we're really lucky. I mean, we have a really good team. We have folks, I think, who are very sincerely motivated. We've gotten some junior people who are energetic, ambitious, and really likable. I mean, I guess, if, you know, what can you say? If, if I would just say in, in the forward-looking sense, I mean, the best thing, you know, <laughs> I mean, all... I'm no, I don't have an MBA, I didn't go to business school, but I, I'm pretty sure every business strategy of building a, an organization would probably be to pick the right people mm-hmm. and probably in medicine more than any, as much or more than any, finding people who have good levels of emotional intelligence, who can get along with people and, and uh, work in a group are, you know, those are the folks who are worth their weight in gold. And so... That's a roundabout way of saying it's really great. The folks we have who are like that are really great, and and those um, are the people you try to recruit. Exactly, and um, you know, but you've you're gonna have sometimes friction here and there. I guess the the advice that I once got from somebody was that was really good uh, in terms of those times when maybe there's a message that needs to be communicated that's not. Yeah, appealing. a message you feel like communicating, uh-huh. or it's not your favorite thing, and all of us are—I don't know—I don't know how many people are really conflict-seeking. I mean, I think most of us lean toward conflict avoidance, at mm-hmm. least, or at least neutral in that regard. Right. But in any case, the advice that was supported by a couple of you know papers this fellow sent me were, was that uh, occasionally, if you're in a, a position where you're directing a group or leading a group, you sometimes have to flip the switch and become and play the role of the agent of the group and so that your message to an individual is not a personal message at mm-hmm. times but it's like okay it's this, this is what we as a group need to do like as agent of the group you're not you don't say those words of course mm-hmm. but as you have to in your in, mentally i'm saying oh, as agent of the group this is a message i need to communicate so that the bigger goals uh, of the group are more easily realized and so it's it's a learning curve that I'm still struggling upwards on, I'm sure. <laughs> what 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 have you learned about leadership that you didn't know when you started? Is it hard? Is it harder to deliver bad news to your faculty than it is to your patients? Uh, is it more challenging? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Uh, the challenges communications patients to. Well, okay, so you know the sort of news that might occasionally have to be communicated with patients, right? I mean, it's that. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to say, this is you know glioblastoma is a terrible disease and blah 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 and you know we're all, we've I, I think we've we've maybe over time all of us have grown up uh, I don't want to say mm, a, a, a veneer or a, a layer of professional distance that we can insert in that conversation for the sake of for both sides I mean you know it's you, you can't become emotionally involved in it. I mean, you want to be sympathetic and all that, but you, you will wear yourself out. I mean, that's a burnout prescription. If you, yeah. if you really got emotionally involved in the next five, you know, I'm using GBM as an example, pick right. cancer cancers, then I don't know if you'll make it a year if you really, right. really, if, if that really is, if you process all that. So, so, so there's, there's a balance between empathy and I think, yeah. 
and, and being able to be professional and, and, and be objective yeah, and yeah. doing the right thing for that person, advising them because you want to, them to receive the message and, and process it according to how they need to make their life plans, whatever. So there's that. Um, of course, with p- professional colleagues, it's it's never so clean, I don't think, as that, or it's never so maybe uh, routine, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's but it's just occasionally the case that you, you know, I, I don't want to emphasize the negative here because mm-hmm. I think the better okay. parts of it are to to build something, uh, build something, and to identify you know longer term strategies and things like this. I mean, you know, every place is different. So when I happened to just become in, in this particular position, there was a certain set of immediate objectives that sort of had to be done. No argument. We need to do this, that, and the other thing. Don't even think about it. However, it was recently that we did get to a point of maybe growth and complexity where it was about time to redefine a, a uh, you know, ar- articulate a, a strategy or a, a vision statement, if you will. And, and we did actually just do that exercise over the past uh, you know, six or 12 months, which had I not done that, had, had I maybe not had an occasion to be in, in a position of directing a group for a while, I might have thought that that was one of those, you know, twelve-step popular business book kind of right. things you do because well, you're supposed to do it every so often. Yeah. But there was something of, I think, something of value in the exercise. I hope there was something of value. I hope the faculty thought there was something of value. Naturally, not everyone will think it's a value. I'm hoping that ninety percent do, and uh, you know, kind of just realign the, you know, make sure the ocean liner is roughly going in the same direction. Although there's a lot of individual, you know, moving parts with it, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I. I, by no means I'm an expert, and I don't think I'll be writing a bestseller on the New York <laughs> Times. You know, I think list. it's a. I think it's a, Well, I guess I, I don't envy you. I think it's a tough job. I mean, I, I'm sure it must be tough because, um, you know, to kind of push on the analogy. I mean, to compare it to like, I, I, I try to I try to advise people that you know the things you should worry about are the things that are under your control. Um, you know, when we when we take care of patients. If you do everything as well as you possibly can do and outcomes don't go the way you want, that is deeply sad. I mean, and I think that inspires us to work better in terms of research and as a profession. But part of you also feels like you did the absolute best you could and you know this person got excellent care and that is a piece of, you know, it makes you feel, I guess, a little bit good about the the whole process. Um, But when you start talking about these interpersonal work relationships and you're talking about the academic medical center, where there are big political movements, there's a lot of um, irrational, um, you know, systemic issues that put incentives in a foolish way and encourage kind of ridiculous behavior, and you try to navigate that kind of politics. I think it is challenging, um, and uh, I, I don't envy it because I think, um, you know, it must be very difficult to know if. Um, I mean, on some some things, you surely must know this is the right decision, but some things you must, you know, still wish like I'd love to change the whole system but this is the system we're in and we can only change this little tiny quadrant of it and we have to do the best we can in our little space I do think that there's there's maybe a value to <clears throat> planned term limits of some sort or mm. life cycles if you will because I, mean, I think a seven or eight year hitch is maybe a good thing I mean I you know I'm thinking back on this recent you know I was on the board of Astro in the eighth year and I'll be rotating off and it's and it's time for other people to really step in and, and have some other thoughts. And they've got great ideas and great energy and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know exactly the length that's perfect, but maybe somewhere in the seven to 10 year range of being in this position of you know, doing something, you, you, know, you get your chance, you do some things and 
you know, there's a lot of other really good people that are probably really ambitious and maybe can do some good things too. So I, I know certain organizations have that in place. I believe the Mayo Clinic will rotate leadership's positions every seven or eight years or something like that. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong. One of your listeners will point this out. And no, they know you're wrong. They don't do that. I don't don't know worry. Why. They'll just email me about it. Okay, good. Um, but, <laughs> but I think you're right. And uh, it, it's interesting to me that in medicine is one of these unique fields of that um, – we have de- we delay adulthood so long, you know, often by a decade, um, that you do see a lot of across the spectrum. I've joked that you're an elder statesman, but you're not really an elder statesman because you're, you're because in medicine there really are elder statesmen, and you're not even close to it. Um, that but, but you find that people really are not achieving um, their peak career job until they are in their late sixties or seventies, even sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes and. Mm-hmm. And I think that contrasts with other professions where my understanding is it's the mid-40s where people tend to have mm-hmm. mid-40s to early 50s where they have their career peak. In medicine, you're talking about, just look at CEOs of hospitals or deans of, of medical schools. You're talking late 60s to 70s even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then you also couple that with the fact that a lot of people are just absolutely unwilling to relinquish any power that they have spent time to amass. Mm-hmm. And um, that makes it challenging um, for, I think new ideas to get injected, which inevitably have to happen. Um, and that is, I think, one of the interesting things about social media is that it really did kind of put that on its head, um, that there are a lot of people out there with different ideas. Some of them are bad ideas, too, let's be honest. They're not always good <laughs> ideas, but there's some of the bad mm-hmm. ideas. But uh, they are able to, you know, get some traction on those ideas in a way they didn't always um, get. Yep. How do you divide your time these days uh, between clinic, administrative duties, and research scholarship, and I guess broader national professional roles like astro president or uh, immediate post president? <laughs> I uh, fortunately we recently had one or two people join the group who are uh, replacing some folks who uh, an individual who left, and um, that's going to be a relief because I was actually absorbing a certain extra set of clinical responsibilities over the past few months, which was challenging. It was good, but challenging. And you mentioned that occasionally you'll cover a clinic where you have to do a mm-hmm. more general thing that's maybe outside your most familiar areas. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the last six or so months, I was actually in a position where I was obliged to cover the pediatric uh, radiation piece of it, which is something that you as quickly forget as, <laughs> as anything mm-hmm. if you're away from it. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a constantly evolving and morphing thing. Mm-hmm. But it was actually a fantastic thing because I, I want to say that, you know, you talk about medicine, uh, oncology as a really good field. Within that world, the world of pediatric oncology, I think is just a magical place because I really think that there are, I, I really think that attracts good people and high character people. And there is this esprit de corps and there is this, this willingness to put uh, all the kids, as many as possible, on clinical trials and continue to learn and continue to improve and continue to inch forward that thing. And so I take no responsibility for that. It was just, it was fun to be a small part of the larger team for the Children's Hospital who was working next to us. So I just want to put that plug in there that I, I, I thought was a really Let me reward. just amplify that. I mean, I think that's a great point that one of the 
success stories in modern medicine has been pediatric uh, leukemia, mm-hmm. in part because for a great deal of time we're putting 50, 60, 70, 80 percent of, of kids with a certain condition on clinical trials and using that to leverage improved outcomes. That's a commitment to trials that you just don't see in other um, fields. You know, we're three percent in adult oncology. I know. I, I, it's, it's magnificent. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's it's a hard field. So it it yeah. self selects people who really want to do that sort of thing as a, really as a calling as much as anything. So, so I, I will say yeah. that although that was a, a little bit of a busy stretch, it was a very rewarding stretch just mm-hmm. to get to know those people again a little bit better. So anyway, that was that was good. But uh, you, you know, I I still do. I mean, I would say the majority of my energy during a week. I can't tell you what. <laughs> my time distribution is mm-hmm. because I don't punch a clock because I'm afraid to, but, um, or I might actually punch a clock because I'm mad at it, <laughs> not in the same way. Anyway, but, you know, I still, I mean, the majority of what I do is still patient care. It's clinical medicine. And then mm-hmm. the other, whatever percentage of that is, you know, some combination of administrative and fun things. And, and the extracurricular stuff is really fun. I mean, it's been a really rewarding thing. I do encourage folks who are, you know, young, up and coming to become engaged in whatever professional society. I and mean, I think you can make friends and I think you can, learn things that you might not have otherwise learned if you become, it can become involved in ASCO committees or ASTRO committees or whatever other society committees if, if you if you have the bandwidth. Um, for me, it was a, a way to meet people and get to know a few things that I would not otherwise have known. So I do enjoy very much saying that. I mean, it'll be a bit of a relief to be a little bit less committed. I mean, I would say that, you know, the past, I don't know, couple of years, if I had to put it in FTE terms, I, I don't know. I suppose it was something like a 0.3 or a 0.4 FTE commitment. I'm not really sure. I see. But it just, you know, it was okay, though. I mean, it was, just, it was just really, um, you know, cause there's a large team of people working uh, really hard to try to do the right thing. And do we always do the right thing? Well, I suppose in retrospect, some things could have been done differently. That might have been better. But I think the effort is there to try to do the right thing. Mm, that's good. Any final thoughts for our listening audience, Dr. Kavanaugh? This has been really a lot of fun. Yeah, I want to thank you for coming on. I really have enjoyed uh, catching up again. And and as I mentioned beforehand, I mean, I was going to call you and have a cup of coffee. We could have had this over conversation, but what the heck? Let's just record it. Let's just record it. That's that's, that's what was inspired the idea for the podcast. Uh, (laughs) But I've had a few people who were willing to have a cup of coffee and say a lot of things, but they're unwilling to be recorded. So I commend you for having the courage to come and get recorded. But I thought, I think it's a, I think listeners will find this, you know, very interesting. I think um, uh, a lot of people listen to this podcast are in medical school or in residency, mm-hmm, yeah. and I think they 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 don't know about you know a lot about radiation oncology. Um, heck, there are even some medical oncologists who don't know enough about radiation <laughs> oncology. Um, but I I think it. it it speaks to you know the themes I thought were very interesting is you know how academic careers can pull you in a way you didn't expect. I, I found it very interesting to hear about uh, you know how it was kind of a fluke pairing that led to this whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess I think probably the fact that you still see patients so much is um, uh, probably why you're a good leader because I think that's that's one of the things that I always struggle with is that sometimes people get so removed from the day to day, you know, they kind of forget what it's like for those of us on the front lines. Um, and uh, But I thought there's just a wealth of pearls. And uh, so thank you so much for coming here, Dr. Kavanaugh. My pleasure. Anytime. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. 
If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.